This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today, we have Don Marty. Good morning. I am the VP of Ecosystem Innovation for Cafe Media, working on open source innovation in user data handling and web advertising. Vinya Logan. Hello, good morning. It's been a long time. I'm happy to return to the podcast for this wonderful episode. And I am actually a co-founder for sociallyconstructed.online, a online community management powered marketing agency. And myself, Georg Blink. Hi, everyone. I'm co-founder of the Chaos Project. Super excited to be back here with you today for this episode. When I'm not in chaos, I work at Biturgia as the director of sales. And most recently, I've been appointed the lead of the community advisory group at IEEE SA Open, where they're building out a new platform for open source projects under the IEEE, which is super exciting new project. But that's not the topic today. We have really awesome guest today, Matt Jankovic. Hi, Matt. Howdy, Garrick. My name's Matt Jankovic. I'm the Hoss, or Head of Open Source Strategy at Percona. I got the cool name, so I know everyone here is jealous of the Hoss name, but my job is to get people excited about Percona's open source software. We do open source database software tooling. We also offer services, support, other things around the open source ecosystem. I've been in the open source space for over 15 years now. First at MySQLAB, then Sun, and then Sun got bought by Oracle. And then I left right before that because who wants to work for Oracle? And now I'm at Percona and I've been here for about 12 years. I did take a little break where I went to another open source company for a short stint, which was Mattermost. Uh, They do open source messaging. That's think of it as like open source Slack, but I'm really happy to be here and excited to get started. That's awesome. Sounds like you have a lot of history in open source, but just for the listeners who might not know, what is Percona and what do you do? So Percona was founded, geez, now it's been about 14 years ago. So we're going to be 15 this year. We were founded by ex-MySQL AB employees. And believe it or not, back in the day, a lot of us at MySQL felt MySQL was getting too corporate. So an open source company getting a little too corporate. So we spun off MySQL. Our Founders, Peter Zaitsev and Vadim Tuchinko have been in this space for longer than I have even. And they found it as a way to keep open source database vendors honest and prevent users from getting taken advantage of because there's a lot of weird licenses out there. There's a lot of information that might seem like it's open, but it really is not as open as you might think. And so Peter founded really Percona to call and keep MySQL honest. Then it kind of evolved where we incorporated MongoDB and Postgres as well. So we help people with all those services. We have our own versions of those databases as well as software to support them. Well, thank you. And so what does you you say you are the Haas at Percona? What does your day-to-day look like? 
Well, so a few things. So I actually work quite a bit across our teams internally to ensure that they're out there helping people get the most out of open source. So trying to get them to blog more, to talk more at conferences, help them to figure out what the community is looking for. I also talk with a lot of people. So I have my own podcast, The Hoss Talks Foss, because you got to play on the name The Hoss if you can. So Wonderful uh, name. Yes. So we started that earlier this year. Before this role, and I just started this role as The Hoss in January, before this, I, I was the CXO, so Chief Experience Officer at Percona. I pulled in a lot of that experience, which was trying to ensure that our users are not only customers who pay us, but everyone out in the open source space gets the most out of Percona. And so we've got a pretty vibrant blog, a pretty vibrant ecosystem, a great YouTube channel with all kinds of great free content for people. We're all about making sure that everyone can get the most out of their databases. And we're very specific to databases, but we do kind of start to move up the stack and down the stack as well. My role is really to just ensure that people get the most and can find what they need quickly. And we hear what they're looking for and make sure we can connect them to it. Wow. I would like to dive in a little bit, if you don't mind, because uh, you have mentioned a few things regarding Percona and also your time at Mattermost seems to represent this as well. Your community seems wildly diverse and spread across a lot of platforms all seeming to create a lot of content. So there's a lot of buzz going on there. Can you talk a little bit about where all of your community facets are and how they kind of tie into and generate a lot of the content that supports your community? Sure. So it's interesting because in the database space, there's a lot of pride in the technology that you choose. So you've got a Postgres ecosystem, you've got a MongoDB ecosystem, you've got a MySQL ecosystem. And a lot of times they don't like each other. Now they're friendly, but you know, there, there is that kind of, oh, we got the better database than you. So there is a little bit of a rivalry a lot of times. And so you'll see that the content that works for one doesn't work for the others. So for instance, MongoDB tends to have a slightly younger audience than MySQL and Postgres. So we know for us, we tend to do better using newer social channels for MongoDB type content. So Our MongoDB content on YouTube, for instance, works really well, whereas our written content on our blog works better for MySQL and Postgres. And Postgres tends to also attract quite a bit of the developer community. So we see that a lot of our Postgres content gets picked up by Hacker News and it gets shared quite widely over there. So we tend to focus first on making sure that we have blogs out there that everyone can get to that's, that's very easy to find. We also encourage all of our employees, we're over 300 now, to speak at different conferences. And when we get conference recordings, we provide those for free on YouTube. So you can go out to YouTube. We've got thousands of hours of videos on everything from database setup to clustering to query tuning to everything else. We also have our own online conference every year. So we have one coming up here in May, Percona online. And so we've done that for over 10 years now as well. We took over the MySQL conference from O'Reilly back in the day. This was before O'Reilly got out of the event space. The most recent time they got out of a lot of other events like 10 years ago as well. And so we took that over. The most recent time. (laughs) Wow. They've gotten rid of a lot of events uh, several times over the years, but uh, now they're officially out of the, the game, which does leave a gap with the OzCon conference not there. So the, the good news is Linux Foundation has a couple other things that they've done with the Open Source Summit. And FOSDEM was just, it just happened a couple of weeks ago as well. Have to fly the flag for scale. Southern California 
Linux Expo is a great event that very often got a lot of the same speakers as the O'Reilly Conference and at a bargain price. So you got more random community people, students, hobbyists, along with the professional IT conference goers. Yeah. And we've done scale uh, several times. Our CEO talks every year. I don't know if they've got it going on this year because of COVID. I think they might have postponed that. I'm not sure. I don't remember seeing an announcement this year. Yeah, it gives me more time to work on my talk for 2022. <laughs> there and if you there go. is something, uh, we can probably, just for our viewers, if there is something, we can probably toss the agenda a link down in the uh, show notes to kind of take a look, peruse through, see if they do have something. So what we were just talking about with the communities that we have and how active they are, and we need to understand the audience, uh, who is in these communities, what channels are they active on? That's a conversation we just had in the Chaos Project. We were just defining a new metric around, I don't remember what the final name is, but it's communication channels where we just wanted to say, hey, if we want to understand how our communities are doing, we need to capture information or activity in all of these different channels that we're tracking. So with that in in the back of our minds, do you look at the health of these communities you're part of? What do you look at? So there's some stuff we want to look at, and then there's some stuff we can look at. And like everything, it's an evolving space. So obviously we want engagement. So first of all, I mentioned our blog as a primary channel. So our blog activity is generally pretty high. We average about 300 to 400,000 unique viewers every month. And so being able to track that, that's not always going to be an accurate measurement of everything that you want, but if it's trending up and to the right, that you're growing your audience. So that's important for us. Similarly, we're looking at the engagements that we have on our social feeds. So whether that's Twitter or LinkedIn or elsewhere, but what we're finding is there's a lot of kind of fake engagements on Twitter, especially as you start to look at advertising and pay for a click and other activities there. So that's a bit of a challenge. Of course, we look at GitHub activities, we look at PRs, we look at submissions, we look at those types of things. But the big one that's missing, because you've got your community engagement where they're actually consuming, you've got the one that they're contributing. But the one that's missing and that's the challenge for many, especially in the open source space, is the challenge of telemetry data or actual usage of the software. And I think this is the big one that from a community perspective, we really need to figure out because being in the open source space, one of the beautiful things is most of us value our privacy quite a bit. And so we don't want to give away our data. We want to make sure that the very minimal is being sent somewhere where we can't control it. And as you saw last year, two years ago, GitLab tried to introduce telemetry into GitLab and the community really had a huge problem on that. They really had some big concerns. So as we look at like that telemetry data, understanding, especially for projects where people are using and where they're not using is critically important because we have communities that we probably only talk to 5% or 10% of the actual users if we're lucky. I've heard some stats say less than 1% we actually know about because they're contributing bugs or, or PRs or other things. So how do we get an understanding of that 99? And that, that's a big thing. Yeah, and kind of regarding that privacy aspect, it's almost like one of those situations where we as community managers have to recognize that security, that dark data is always going to be something we want but can't necessarily have, and rightly so. So the question becomes, how exactly do we 
receive consent and receive a dialogue with these communities when we can't really measure the data that would directly determine whether or not they're using a specific software or engaging in a specific community or lurking in a specific portion of our customer value journey. Yeah, and I think that's where there are some methods and some tools. Obviously, a lot of places do an opt-in or an opt-out. Depending on where you are, you can opt in or out of the data and how you want to treat that. But I also think it's important for you to have full transparency when you're asking for data. So let people have the decision-making power to say, I'm willing to share X, but not Y. And summary data, but not detailed data. We've seen this with different tools. And this is a problem that isn't just for open source software. Think about this. How many people now are using SaaS services or cloud services? How much of your data is already out there that you just don't even, you aren't aware of? So people are willing to share some of it, especially if you're very transparent about it. I'm not saying that the SaaS providers are doing a good service by you know, having all that data and not telling you what they're doing with it. But I am saying that I think people are a bit more open if you're fully transparent about that and if you give them the option to opt out. At least that's the hope. But there's a fine line between too much and just enough. And that's where I think it's important for us to figure that line out. As we know, GitLab went over the line and kind of got slapped back. So, Yeah. And- I think we're also seeing this again outside of the open source communities and stuff like that with the iOS 14 market snap. I'm not entirely sure if you're familiar with it, but recently iOS decided to include a catch-all opt-in. And I think somewhere on the total of like 80% of people are expected to click no. So Facebook and a whole bunch of other market industries are pushing back against that saying, hey, we run on ads and we can no longer serve all of these ad people. But the reality is, it's the user's freedom to click, no, I don't want to be tracked. And it's something that we, as an entire internet ecosystem, have to figure out. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at the laws that have been enacted Recently, I mean, it's been a few years since GDPR went live, but we just had the California security law that went live as well. Canada has their own laws to govern privacy. I think this is becoming a bigger concern because right now, being someone who's in the data space, we see that people have become data hoarders because you want as much data as possible. Everybody's out there to figure out how to make the next you know, unicorn, and they think it's right around the data corner. Right. So if I just have more information about what Matt is doing on the internet, I can sell him 10 times more product or I'll get him to buy my car or whatever. Everybody has that mentality. And so no one wants to get rid of data. Now, couple that with government regulations now that say, like, oh, you can't get rid of data because there might be some violation or we might need to go search for it. And you've got this perfect storm of thousands of databases now with terabytes or petabytes of data that who knows what's in. Yeah. And as far as state privacy laws go, it's tremendously popular. Nevada has one, Washington, New York, Virginia is probably the furthest along of any of the newest batch of CCPA followers. And in one sense, it looks like all these privacy regulators are doing slightly different things and it's a pain to keep up with. But when I look at Things like Apple iOS policy changes, Google Chrome getting rid of third-party cookies, various privacy regulators. 
it all looks like they're kind of chasing the same fundamental ideas of putting the user in control and letting them exercise their own norms on how that data is handled. And so at the point when you're putting together your database schema, Matt, do you notice people saying, well, we know now that there's going to be some kind of accountability or some need to establish the provenance of data. So we need to put in the column for consent or whatever early on in the stage of designing that database? So, yeah, I think most applications, you have to have that consent now, especially anything that's on the internet, because you're going to be global. And just because your servers are housed in the U.S. doesn't mean that you don't still have to apply GDPR rules if you're serving customers in Europe. There's all kinds of international crossing boundaries that's just squishy gray area. But unfortunately, I mean, this is not related to privacy, but we're, we're also entering this trend where we've tried to make technology even easier than it, it has been in the past with whether it's tools like databases of service or other things. So developers are getting less and less into designing their applications and more and more into piecing the Lego pieces together. And so from an architecture perspective, what you end up seeing, especially on the database side, is designs that aren't as scalable and don't have as much flexibility and don't take these things into account. And there's been this great kind of like technology race to make things easier. And it's not just from a cloud provider perspective. MongoDB's, one of its claims to fame is we're schemaless. And I can not find any developer that I've ever talked to who likes to design a schema, right? It's like the anti-developer thing, like, ah, databases. It's like garlic to vampires. They hate it. So it's okay, right? There's database geeks who like it. Developers don't need to like the schema. I mean, Don, maybe you like the schema. I like making schemas. Oh, okay. Well, okay. So now I met one. So Don, we should talk. We we should get some more details. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll share one of my favorite ones with you sometime. But I also like you, to scheme and make schemas, oh, so you, but I'm not a developer. <laughs> uh, there you go. But with the schemas, like I said, there's this, this movement towards the, these things. And so MongoDB, they claim to be schemaless. But what they don't tell you is if you don't put things into a schema, then things get larger because and now all of a sudden the collections have to be bigger because you have to support these really flexible things. Not only that, the performance hit can be pretty substantial and it can be a nightmare to find individual things in that. So the best practice for Mongo is to still design a schema. So being schemaless doesn't really work. It kind of reminds me a lot of integration bloat, which is something that a lot of SaaS stacks are having to deal with. It's this idea of if you want to use our software, we have to fit into your SaaS stack. And the easiest way for us to fit in is for us to get as many integrations as possible. So they'll go to a integration software and say, all right, how do we connect with you? And now they're just producing a ridiculous amount of code that isn't really helping with their actual software getting better or better. And it's just ending up with them building automatic APIs to these other softwares that may or may not use the data as well as if they were to design it like that from scratch. Yeah. And I think that you see not only that kind of movement into now we've got this, how many things can we integrate with? This is part of the kind of SAF or the underbelly of the as-a-service space. You've got these as-a-service companies who are designing wonderful tools, but there 
is not one tool per se that you can get to do everything that you need at your company. So you need a dozen, two dozen, 30, 40, 50. And I can't find many applications that work in a silo. So they all need to share data and they all need to integrate. And so that integration is the critical component, not only for SaaS, but now for the modern IT infrastructure. Yeah. I find that it leads a lot of people who are looking for a specific SaaS stack or for a specific company. And I deal with this with clients all the time. You have two general ways that you could go. You have either the Titanic model, which is find this one company that can do it all, not that great, or find this fleet of SaaS stacks that equals like a veritable navy of well-intentioned, really well-refined battleships that communicate and talk to one another. And in both cases, you kind of end up with this problem child of over here, I have to make sure that every single SaaS that integrates and connects, I have to do training for all of these companies. And then over here on the Titanic side, you can barely turn on a dime because things like IMIS and Constant Contact and a few other like really big companies that try to do it all, they just cannot produce a quality version for X task that I need from my CRM or my database backend. So a moment ago, we were talking about the privacy and how some developers don't like to be tracked or are defying the whole telemetry attempts that several open source projects have tried and had to abandon. One of the things that we are talking about right now in the chaos project, it's an ongoing conversation, is how do open source projects or communities that want to provide data about themselves, how do we deal with our own data? And so One thing we are doing right now is crafting data policy or privacy policy for our open source project, because there's this idea that we work in the open, the data is available, but then some people don't want us to analyze it, even though it's out there. And is it public? Is it not public? There are a lot of questions around around that. So I don't know if you have any ideas on this, any of you. Well, yeah, that's a tough one because there's a push like, so right now I'll give you a really good example of what we're going through at Percona. So we're really trying to be as open and transparent as possible, but a lot of our engineering discussions, a lot of our work happens on internal discussion groups, email threads, Slack channel stuff. So we're having a lot of discussions. How much do we want to move this more to an open public forum? How much should we have our engineer to engineer conversations? Because we want more community participation there as well. But then there's that fine line, and it's that fine line when you start to then introduce actual paying customers who have privacy concerns, or even those in the community space. How many times have we seen in the last year someone accidentally publish credentials for a project on GitHub? It happens all the time. Solar Winds, oh yes, you published your credentials for FTP, and now we got the biggest hack in the US history, right? But People do that with support tickets. They do that on public Slack channels. They do that everywhere. So as you're trying to engage with your community, there's a risk. And part of the challenge there is from a legal perspective, if you control those resources, what are you liable for? And I'm not a lawyer, so I can't answer that question. I'm not qualified to answer that question, but you know, it's a weird area. 
because you've got these people who are openly saying, oh, here's my configuration file. Oh, there's an embedded password in it. So now anybody can get into your systems. It's on your you know, forum. It's on your, it's, a, it's an odd space for sure. We don't have the answer yet. Personally, like we're working it out. We're trying to figure out what we should make public, what we shouldn't. We want to have more public discussions and we try to be very transparent about everything we do. But that, that's where we are. Yeah, and GitHub has done some interesting work with, it looks like your commit that you're trying to push to us as an SSH private key in it and warning people. But it seems like a lot of that effort has to be done manually. Do you find yourself taking private discussions and then going through the work of sanitizing them to the point where they can be shared with the community as a public content resource? We try to, especially with our knowledge base internally. We've got like a customer knowledge base that we have that's on our ticketing system. We also have our blog. And so a lot of our blogs will be actual customer use cases that we went and solved the problem. And then we'll make kind of a sanitized version of what the problem was. And we'll kind of lab that out. And that works pretty well. It doesn't always work. And sometimes it's a challenge because if it's a really complicated problem, there could be a lot of nuance. So that means that it's a bit of a challenge there. I think that also extends into bug reports as well, though. So how many bug reports end up on a public Jira that have things you shouldn't have published? And we also have the problem of the biggest issue that we tend to deal with is performance issues. So people send us a lot of queries or query logs. And so when someone has something like select star from table where social security number equals, that sometimes comes through in those logs because they haven't sanitized that. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. So how do you tend to handle, like, do you have a specific policy or data destruction point or something along those lines for your support tickets? Yeah, so we've had to implement different encryption schemes. We've had to go through different like security checks to ensure that our systems are compliant to store that. And we have systems and things in place that people can sign up to say like, yeah, you can only have my data for X amount of time. And so we're able to allow them to kind of self-select if this is something that we want to get rid of, we don't, we give them some options and some granularity there. But just because you have those options, you have to do a multi-layered approach. So it's not one thing fits all of these. I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen someone think that their systems are secure and that they've done everything possible only to have something not be set up correctly. So it's about a multi-layer defense in every situation, just like any security issue. You want to ensure that your systems have those safety nets. So when your primary thing fails, you go to the secondary or the tertiary thing and make sure. So we've gone through that. We've had to get like our compliance certifications from the different PCI and ISO compliance things. I don't know. I'm, I'm not the legal guy. I'll just say like compliancy things. 
That's an interesting segue to compliance. And one of the things that we hear about is license compliance. And since you are in the database space and there's been a lot of conversations about licenses with certain database providers late, I thought maybe we can talk about that for a moment. With the open source initiative, that is the authoritative body of saying this is an open source license or not. We have developed in chaos a metric that basically says if you scan your repository and look for all licenses, what is the percentage of licenses that are approved by the open source initiative or OSI? So we call it the OSI approved licenses. But there's a whole conversation around where's this trend overall going with open source licenses and I just want to see, since you're in this space, especially around database, what are your thoughts? Well, so I just did a talk at FOSDEM. It's on YouTube now, as well as FOSDEM's website, on what I call the death of openness and freedom. Is open source under attack? And it really talks about the changes in the licensing scheme. Now, I actually wrote the presentation before Elastic made their changes. So for those who are listening who haven't been following the news, I can't get away from it. It's on every feed that I have and everyone's complaining about it. But Elastic made changes to their license agreement. So they've moved away from a open source model and they even readily admit they are no longer open source and they've embraced the SSPL. Now the SSPL, which is the server-side license from MongoDB, they've built this license as really an anti-cloud license. It's to say, oh, it's all open. The source is available. You can get the source. You can download it. You can use it. But if you want to run it as a service or if you want to offer services around it, then, oh, then you have to talk to us. And then you have to follow these extra special protocols. Everything that touches this software should be released under the SSPL as well and made readily available. Now, this is a movement that we've seen specifically from commercial database providers as kind of this leading edge of this movement. This is where most of the movement has been from. And the reason for that is really the cloud is making a killing on databases as a service. And the cloud has like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Alibaba, and the rest. They have figured out a way to take open source and monetize it in the as a service model like no one else ever dreamed could happen. And because it's readily available, they can take it. They don't have to pay anyone for it and they can build their infrastructure on it just like anyone else can build their infrastructure on the open source software that's out there. But these companies that are out there, they've built their model on the ability to sell that database software to you, to be able to upsell you to bigger support contracts or enterprise versions. And so they feel threatened. But what's interesting is, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, we've actually seen this movement escalate because these companies were never open source friendly to begin with in a lot of cases. Or if they were, as they've taken on more money, as money has entered the ecosystem, it's changed the dynamics of what they're looking at. And so when you look at these companies' backgrounds, MongoDB, the CEO of MongoDB, famously said, we never chose open source to get any community contribution. This is a quote from him. I, I don't have the exact quote, but you know we can put it in the links if we want. But he said, we never open sourced to get community contributions. We did it as a freemium model to drive growth. So this is what happens when you talk about the, the money in the open source space, especially around commercial databases, is you get investors who come in, they provide you with a lot of money because what they see is the download metrics. 
that's what has driven MySQL, Mongo, everything else at, at the beginning. It's like, oh my God, look at these downloads. There's so many of them. And the Silicon Valley investors go, oh, we can figure out how to monetize this. This is going to be awesome. Think about like when we've got 200 million downloads, what can we do when we start charging each one of those 200 million downloads some sort of monetary fee? And so they pour money into this. And as they pour money into it, they keep on chasing more and more growth. And then they figure out, oh, downloads don't really work that well as a metric to drive revenue. And then they start to look at, okay, well, why aren't we driving revenue fast enough? And keep in mind, none of these companies are poor. Now, none of these companies are making a profit because they're spending so much money chasing the downloads, chasing the adoption that they're following this eventual revenue model. It's like eventual consistency in NoSQL databases. It's eventual revenue for NoSQL commercial database vendors, I guess. It's one of those crazy things. But everyone is trying to escalate their revenue path and escalate their path to revenue. And they view the cloud as a place they can go capture more market share. So if they prevent the cloud from having a service on the open source stuff, then they can partner with the cloud or sell to the cloud their enterprise version and then get more money from them. But the weird thing is that they're kind of codependent on one another. No way MongoDB or Elastic or any of these other companies would be nearly as profitable or have as much revenue if the cloud didn't exist. The cloud itself has enabled more applications to, you know, quickly scale up and down and have people start small and grow big than any other technology over the last 10 years. Certainly open source was there and it's moved into this, but now the cloud provides the infrastructure side. So now you've got the software and the services to do it. The interesting part, and thank you for explaining this, the interesting part to me and for the chaos project is the idea that the, what you said, the companies never tried to build a healthy community around these projects. And I think if, I don't remember where I've seen this, if you look at who are the contributors in these projects, it is a lot the employees making the contributions to these database projects. Yeah. And even when there are contributions externally, so for instance, Elastic, I saw a number and I can't verify that it's accurate, but there were some 1600 contributions over the last couple of years. And the question comes in now that they've changed licenses, they, they had a somewhat active community. Oh, well, what happens to the 1600 people who actually did contribute? And so now you've got like, if you do have a community, you've just burned your community. You've just told them that they don't matter, their code contributions. Thank you very much, but now we're going to take your code. We're going to put it in an SSPL. You can't use it to do whatever you're going to do. And there are countless companies out there who have built on the Elk stack or built services around this that are now like, oh my God. I mean, Elastic did as well. Amazon did as well. And that's why they're doing the open distro. I mean, the great thing about open source is you can always fork it. But the problem is a lot of these companies do control most of the engineering resources, do make most of the contributions. And to fork something is a massive effort. It requires a lot of investment. And then you get back into the investment game and then you have investors who are driving those license changes. Now, an interesting thing that, and speaking of investors, and I'll diverge into this, this little tangent, I saw this event that just happened. It was an investor-led event on, it was the, I forget what it was called, something open source. It was like the great investor open source show or something. And they were going to talk about the growth of open source and all this stuff. And it was all of the companies that this one investment group had invested in. Every one of them has changed their license. And it's like, whoa, so if I'm going to go get money, I don't want to go to that investment house because they're going to make me change my license. 
because it's like confluent. It's like Mongo. It's, you know, elastic. You're like, what? All these people have changed their license. So how much is that driven by that chase for shareholder value? Sounds like there's a dialectical tension here. And I've actually run into this several times for community management. I've actually recommended that if you're going to be pulling together metrics, put together a dashboard for your community and a dashboard for your brand. And none of your dashboard metrics should have shared connections. Then when you build the report that goes below the dashboard where people are like, whoa, this number's wonky, what happened? That's where they should have the same thing. Almost precisely because there's this tension because what's good for your community is not necessarily good for your investors and your bottom line and all your company profits. And then when you make decisions at the bottom end of your funnel, when conversions happen, that's those download metrics that you were talking about. Those metrics might skyrocket, but then you end up losing the overall health of your community and you're wondering what just happened. Would you say that's where a lot of this could be cut off is if you were to look at metrics A rising and metrics B lowering in proportion? Maybe. I actually ran marketing at Percona for a couple of years. So, I mean, I've got both sides of this coin. So I know that they're, you want to pay people salaries. So you need to bring in money. You need to bring in the revenue. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think there could be a symbiotic relationship between the activities that the community does and the marketing activities. However, I think the timeframes are very different. And I think that's the thing that most people don't understand. And I think that hurts the overall willingness for a lot of companies to invest heavily in community because community is a long tail activity. It's about fostering relationships that last multiple companies. It's about fostering relationships that go over many years. And I think that's a very important and key thing because when you look at marketing is really designed to how do I get sales to get optimized? How do I get them leads? To generate. So I think that's an important thing to consider, right? Is you've got this thing where you've got, hey, I'm looking for the long-term health of the community, but the bigger the community I have, the bigger pie that sales eventually people will will come in. And for me, I'm looking for people who, you know, hey, you want to buy something great, come to us, raise your hand. I don't want to force you or try and trick you into buying. And I think that's where a lot of these quote unquote not quite open source companies come in because they're really out there trying to say, oh yeah, we're open. And I'll not say that the cloud is all pansea out there. They do the same thing where they go out there and they tell everyone, hey, we're fully managed. And you realize that really it's only this operational managed layer that's very small, very infinitesimal, if you will. There's a lot of activities you can't do. And so people buy into that. And then all of a sudden they start scaling their companies by credit card. And oh, bigger instance, they also have this new term called open source compatible, which is, I guess it's like, it's like open source. You can kind of use it like open source, but once you get in, you're totally trapped. That's right? almost so, like you're not playing fair at that point. Like, yeah, yeah. But that, that's, what, that's what AWS Aurora is, yeah. MySQL and Postgres. It, it's open source compatible. It reminds me a lot of, a lot of companies have to make this decision about how porous their communication and their uh, public relations and their marketing is. So at a certain point, you have specific levels of transparency and how porous that level of transparency is, how easy it is to get into that upper echelon where you can see everything. It's almost like they're now taking that concept and moving it into licensures where it doesn't belong. Yeah. So from the point of view of a 
developer who's starting a new project, there's got to be some pressure to say, well, just put this thing on some database as a service offering, put in your credit card number, get an API key, have somebody else run the database for you. How do you balance that database option against the option of running an open source database and managing it yourself? Well, so the, this is both a database as a service is both a good thing and a bad thing all at the same time. It really depends. It is wonderful tool to prototype, move fast, get in there, and it can be a great equalizer if you understand the limitations. The issue that you run into with a lot of companies is they think they can go without anybody, without any database knowledge, right? It, they could just, we're not going to worry about the database. We've got fill in the blank cloud provider doing it, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, Google. And the reality is that the same number of people have issues with availability, downtime, performance issues in the cloud as they do outside the cloud. We do a yearly survey and we ask the question, hey, in the last 12 months, have you experienced outages? Have you experienced downtime with your database? Have you experienced performance issues? And you know what? The numbers were actually higher in the cloud than they were on-prem. And you might say like, well, that seems weird. Well, part of that is people aren't investing in their database layer and in the database knowledge and expertise because it's now become the easy button for a lot of folks. And that's the challenge. It's not that the database as a service is a bad option. It's just, you still need to do those things like build a schema. You still need to design it right. You still need to take and make sure your queries are optimized. You need to make sure your application is matching the workload. And we've actually worked with companies, actually cloud providers come to us and say like, hey, this company is going to kick us out unless we can like lower their bill. Can you help us like tune their systems? And so we've done that for cloud providers and cloud providers sometimes pay us to tune their company systems because it's a big deal because people just think it's this quote unquote easy button. But it's interesting. I think that the cloud has been the great equalizer. It's lowered the barrier of entry for everybody, which is great, but it's also frightening because people who don't know how to run the technology now have great power in their hands. So the Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. You have great power as a developer now. You can add things you could never add 10 years ago. You have the complete power to choose databases, to choose your stack, to do things. But the problem is you don't understand that power. And a lot of times you leave databases unsecure. Hey, half of the breaches out there are Mongo or Elastic related. And most of those are caused because no one set a password. I mean, come on, guys, password. Hey, I have this great idea. Let's solve all these breaches by the set password command. There, done. Boom, solved. I could solve all these breaches. But the thing is, we've lowered that barrier of entry. And now people are getting in there. They're doing things. They're moving data out into the cloud. They're moving it to the right place but they're not securing, they're not taking those proper steps. So it's not a either or decision. It's more of a, hey, use it, but use it responsibly. And it's a great tool, but you can get more control and you can have a bit more of a performant environment if you're doing it on your own. So we are coming up to the end of our session. Matt, where can people find you online if they want to follow you and learn more about your talks and blog and everything? Well, so I'm on the Percona blog. So I, I blog regularly at uh, percona.com slash blog. So if you haven't checked that out, it's a great resource for all of your database related activities. I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can just look up M. Yank is my, my LinkedIn handle or M. Yankovic 
on Twitter and on YouTube, on the Percona YouTube channel, we have the Haas Talks Foss podcast and it's now being added to Apple, Google and everywhere. So it should be everywhere that podcasts are in a matter of a week or two. That's awesome. We always like to end our podcast with uh, value ads or picks where we talk about something that has brought value and joy into our lives. This can be an open source library or a tool that we've found or just a general something else. So I'll start. I'll kick us off with that. I've discovered graphic novels. We have a 13-year-old who is convinced he does not like to read. But once we give him a graphic novel, then suddenly it's wondrously no problem anymore. So yeah, sometimes you just need to find what works with children. And I found graphic novels a great way to encourage reading. I'll go next, kind of jumping off that encouraged reading thing. I've been working, I've had my head in the sand for a while, just working as much as I possibly can on a virtual events platform set. And because of that, it's been very difficult to interact on a relational level, not task oriented. Hey, let's talk about the work. Let's actually like sit down and discuss. And I've been having a lot of that trouble with my coworkers. So I dived into a free available book on communicationcash.com. It's one of my favorite books called Virtual Teams That Work. It's free. Feel free to use it. I'll link it in the show notes. It's an incredible collection of wonderful white papers about ensuring that the relational aspects of your teamwork continue to stay in your process. I definitely recommend giving it a solid read. Okay, well, I can go next. So I'm really excited. I just was able to sit down with one of our guys at uh, Percona and talk to him about some benchmarks he did on the new EC2 instances that have ARM CPUs. Now, if you guys haven't played around with uh, Raspberry Pis or any sort of ARM-based processors, they're smaller, they're more power efficient, and they cost a lot less, which means that you can get servers for a lot cheaper. And actually, the performance is actually better than the more expensive and more power-hungry Intel processors. So I'm really excited to extend and see how that takes further into, especially the database space and other avenues of the tech space, because I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to data and I like benchmarks. So I guess it's like that old guy fixing his car back in the fifties. You do the hot rod, I do the hot rod database. So I like the, the, the performance tuning and the benchmarking. So that always gets me interested and excited to see some new technology to test and play with. Well, I uh, honestly don't have anything. I forgot about this this part of the segment and I've been kind of cooped up in quarantine and can't think of anything right now. Well, Don, I can give you something if you want. I, I, I got millions of things. So I was speaking of those ARM-based processors. I actually found this open source project. It's called Pi, so for Raspberry Pi, a uh, whole. It's an application that you can stick on a Raspberry Pi that will actually filter out all of the advertising and tracker stuff on the router level. And so I haven't been able to install it yet, but I got my Pi sitting next to me and I'm going to play with that this weekend. So that seems kind of exciting to me to be able to filter out all of the advertising tracking stuff, talking about privacy earlier. Sounds interesting. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It is time to say thank you. Thank you, Matt, for coming on as a guest today. Oh, it was great. My pleasure. I'm happy to jump on anytime that you want. I am probably the most opinionated and I have no shame of any person at Bergona. So any topic, anytime, just let me know. I'm always around. 
that's what makes for a good podcast. Yes. Thank you. And thank you, Vinya and Don, for joining us as panelists today. Thank you. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community.